So here we are, season two. I did a decent amount of digging in the behind the scenes here, and I couldn't find answers to any of the questions I had. I'm sorry. I hate to just flat out report that I don't know, but I don't know. I have a few disparate reports that I'm going to share with you. So the show wasn't doing too well, but it wasn't doing particularly badly either. As I already mentioned, there were quite a few people watching it, especially amongst the target demographic, and it was helping to push the convention circuit along. It is reported by several people, these are interviews, so who knows the validity of these, that the reason for the backing, both financially and politically, for Phase 2 and eventually Star Trek The Motion Picture was in many ways boosted by the boost in perceived value of Trek thanks to this show. So why do they only renew it for six episodes? This is further confusing because Season 2 was universally cheaper than Season 1 for the same reason that's true in any given show. Although, especially when it comes to an animated show. In an animated show, you've already drawn the bridge. You've already drawn the most of the animations for the individual crew members. All that stuff is done. You still have to put it together and slice it together, but that is a huge chunk of work that was front-loaded, right? And this is true with a lot of works, actually. It's one of the reasons why uh, video games tend to have something I call expansion effect. You, you, you pay up most of the cost in both time and money, as well as expertise, in making the work, the game, the show, the movie, up front. And now that you've done all that work, you can now work on making the actual content based on this infrastructure you developed, right? And this is one of the reasons why the animation is noticeably better in Season 2. And I'm actually still considering what I'm going to do with the Season 2 intro, because, you know, the Season 1 intro, well... But the Season 2 intro, I've been debating giving it a little bit of a boost because the animation is a little bit better. Just just a bit. More variety, uh, better frames, better better bo uh, blocking, too, better storyboarding. Which is also probably relevant since they got a new director. Bill Reed, the second of two directors who direct on this show. I decided to just go ahead and look it up. There's just the two. It was Sutherland for Season 1. It's Reed for Season 2. That's it. Here's the really weird thing, though. This episode was written by Howard Weinstein, uh, and if I'm probably pronouncing his name incredibly wrong, I do apologize for that, no insult is intended, but the man is probably familiar to quite a few of you, because he works on the novels as well as the comics and has done so for many years. There's probably been at least one comic or novel of the, you know, of Star Trek that you have read that has been penned by this gentleman. This was his first entry into Star Trek. He was only 19, still in college at the time, and was extremely excited to get involved. In fact, he was trying to get involved in season two when they were still getting geared for it towards the end of season one. Sent in a request to Miss Fontana personally. She declined it for legal reasons because she was, and this is quoting from him, so I don't know of the validity of this, she was apparently no longer working as the producer of the show in season two. Now, I have been unable to find any other information to clarify on this fact. In fact, she herself speaks almost not of it at all. She has spoken extensively about season one, but said almost nothing about season two. Furthermore, she is still credited as associate producer for season two. 
but apparently for legal reasons was just walking away from the show. That's curious. That could mean a whole lot of different things. And the fact that they're being so tight-lipped about it means something probably happened. Either there was a bit of a falling out, or maybe she hated the show, or maybe she was just trying to distance herself from it, or maybe there was behind-the-scenes bullcrap. It was probably behind-the-scenes bullcrap. I don't know, as I said earlier. Either way, based on these little pieces of evidence and the fact that the show was doing well, but was having production problems, and also this was right around when certain people were starting to move in certain different directions with regards to Paramount. This is 72 and 73, the range when this was happening. Um, there's a pretty good chance that this is the reason why they only ordered six new episodes, despite the fact that it was, by all accounts, actually getting a decent return on investment, and in fact would win an Emmy. I'll talk about that in a bit. The first Emmy that Star Trek had win won. So, don't know. I do know that the they had they didn't have a better budget so much as they had a more stretched out budget. While the budget for season two was obviously less than the budget for season one, it had to be stretched out amongst far fewer episodes. And so the per episode budget actually went up for once, which is extremely unusual for a show like this. Um, so instead, they were actually able to spend the money on a few additional things, like actually having eight cast members on this one, which is a new record, by the way, for most. We've had a few seven cast member episodes because it's the seven main cast, but actually having an eighth person, oh my god. Um, and uh, that's it. Let's talk about the episode proper. Different blood, different disease. Yeah, that makes sense. A lot of actual real-life terrifying diseases are diseases that are so terrifying because they're not intended for the species they are devastating. In fact, almost every major human plague qualifies under that exact proviso, since obviously a virus burning down its own house is not exactly an exa a good idea, even from something that doesn't really have a mind pushing behind it. It also kind of makes me wonder how many times this kind of thing would come up amongst how many different species coexist in the same area. We know that our own immune systems vary, vary and change based on our environment. It's one of the reasons why people from one country who go to another country are often advised to you know, do a couple things to even that out. And if you rewind time a few centuries, that was a huge and devastating deal because you would be exposed to diseases, and so would the people you're interacting with, that neither side had the, uh, the immunity buildup for. I found myself wondering if we have almost a quarian situation here, where it's standard federation policy to get regular immuno boosters specifically for all the diseases that all the people on your specific ship carry. Like, I could see that being one of the jobs of the chief medical officer and the chief medical staff of a given ship. Okay, we have these seven species on our ship. So, let's go down the list and figure out what diseases each one has that the others aren't used to dealing with, and let's design specific immune shots that they have to take on a regular basis to, to make sure that their systems are dealing with these things. Otherwise, they, you know, blah, 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 blah. You get the idea, right? Or, maybe in some cases, they just want to allow them to get infected normally, and then, you know, just manage the symptoms so that it's not lethal or devastating or permanently scarring, and then they build up their own natural immunity. Given how much of a hodgepodge the Federation is, with how many different species and races they interact with on a regular basis, it wouldn't surprise me if the latter is part of the th is is a deliberate design intent. After all, 
the thing I just mentioned about other countries is nowhere near as significant now as it used to be because there's so much regular transport between different countries in the modern times. And so the same general concept could apply to, to you know, the Federation. Just food for thought. I don't know. It's a dumb thing to, to think about. But this episode got me thinking in several ways. Speaking of which, they need that drug that's over there. They're over here. They can't get there in time. Let's get a ship from over there and drag it this way and we'll meet halfway. You know, here is a Might and Magic 5. In all seriousness, that makes a lot of sense. And I applaud it for basic logic. I know this sounds so strange to praise an episode for having basic logic, but it has been so absent, most of the animated series, that its its sudden inclusion is noticeable. There's a lot of sense-making in this episode, and it's probably the best scripted episode so far in TAS. Don't mistake me, I like Yesteryear. I do. And the other one I can't remember the name of right now. Um, that would be Slaver Weapon, which I also like quite a bit. But this, in terms of just sheer quality of the actual script, might beat out the others. And it's no wonder that this gentleman would go on to write so much Star Trek stuff in the future. It's a shame we didn't get him an actual television script, but, you know, whatever. Anyways. So, here's a Might Magic 5. I, I meant it referenced. Let me, let me make it clear. Your, your base is over there producing new troops. Your unit's way out here. And so what you can do is you can send your main army all the way back, grab the troops, and then go all the way back out. Or you can have another group whose job it is to ferry troops or meet halfway, depending on how urgent your need is. Again, logic, right? So Kirk and McCoy both clearly care, and they both clearly are putting effort in. And you notice, and again, this is that animation thing. We have a new ship. Actually, we have two new ships and two new bridges in this episode. And new aliens and new people. I already mentioned this. This is, once again, that advantage of the front-loaded stuff. Because all those Enterprise shots and all the shots of the main cast members, those have been done. So while they still have to put the work in, putting the sheets in and actually filming them, the work, the ma the bulk of the work has already been done. So they could spend some of their time and budget actually animating new stuff. And now they can... It's, it's expansion effect. It's straight up. And it does look noticeably better, like I said. At the very least, it looks noticeably more varied. You'll notice the color palette is different, too. Again, I'm going to put that on Mr. Reed, because he apparently, is, because he's worked with Filmation before, had a bit of a style for trying to use distinct and, sh and bright colors in order to try and vary up his visual style. So uh, it, it's kind of noticeable, and we'll see what we think of it in the next five episodes. Now, there's a downside with that whole rendezvous idea. Let's cut back to Hom 5 for a second. So, my little dude's over here with all the troops, and my main army's over here. My main army's a death stack. It can crush everything. This is just reinforcements. They're on their way over. If another enemy main army gets in the way, well, they're screwed. They don't have the ability to fight a main force. And you see the problem. Interception. This is actually a very serious problem in just about anything, um, even if you have tremendous power, militarily or economically or politically or whatever, if you can't project that power, that power is meaningless. If you have this great castle with these amazing knights, but for some made-up reason you can't sally out, and you're stuck in that castle, then while you have certainly strong defenses on that castle, you're going to be screwed because you can't reach out and actually project that power into anything nearby. So, this little ship is taken by the Orion ship. Now, let me go ahead and give credit to Logic again, because the only reason the Orion ship manages against the cargo vessel is because it's a cargo vessel. But that Orion ship is inferior to, to Federation tech in almost every way. 
naturally they don't put all of their tech into a cargo vessel because it's a cargo vessel. Now, normally these would probably have some kind of escort, but as we've seen, especially in this era of Trek and the eras previous to it, Enterprise, having regular uh, escorts for cargo lines is not super common. They simply don't have the numbers. They may have what is effectively infinite resources in what is effectively a post-scarcity society back on Earth, but time is still a factor. Even if they had a perfect ship replicator, which they don't, but let's assume they did, that would still take time to produce the ship, gear up the people, get them equipped uh, mentally and emotionally, get them ready, you know, get them trained for the, the ship operation, and then get the ship out there. Even with infinite resources, which is debatable if Trek has at this point in history, but even if we did assume that they do have that, they still need time to make that happen. There's only so much throughput. So, once again, this is logical. Sorry for gushing about this. I, I, I was really impressed with this episode. By the way, this is definitively an episode I never saw before. No memory of this one. I think it's the first one that I didn't see. I'm, I don't know why. Maybe I just didn't see season two. I, I don't know. We'll see as we go through. Because I'm pretty sure I've seen the counterclock incident, but I'm not sure about the other ones. Anyways. So, the Orions. I'm never going to call them again. The Orions show up. Notice the pacing and structure of this. First half of the episode is all build up. It's all trying to set the stage and set the conflict and, and literally, it's like, okay, we got this asteroid belt. We've got this desperate need. We've got a ticking clock that actually makes sense. And this is cool. The Orions are inferior to them in almost every way. This is interesting in its own right because they do not present a threat of the weak in the traditional sense, ignoring the fact that the Orions are recurring bad guys. There's also the fact that they're, again, part of the whole point of the threat of the week is that they're <laughs> But a well-written threat of the week could be like this, where they are dangerous, not because of the fact that they have a bigger ship or superpowers or mega whatevers, instead simply because of the fact that the exact circumstances limit the definition of victory. If the Enterprise was here just to destroy the Orion ship, then they'd do it, and they'd win in seconds. But they want that drug, and specifically that drug, and there's no other time. There's no other time to get another source. There's no other place to, to drag it to. They need that drug right there within, I think it's like an hour when they first show up, is, is their time range. And even that's optimistic. So, how do we get it without... Because they could just... And then try to take the ship in, but that would risk damaging the drug, especially since they have trouble actually finding it since it's such a small amount that their scanners are having trouble noticing it. Notice that they also immediately detect that the enemy ship has all their dilithium, which is probably what the enemy ship was actually after. It would have almost been funny if they hadn't taken the drug, and instead it was like, ah, oh, okay, well, whatever. <laughs> Anyways, so all of this construct and this thread is very well written, and once again, praise. So the Orions look terrible. I know I was just praising the new animation, but man. <laughs> <Oof>. Um <clears throat> Direct reference to the Babel Conference, by the way. Nice touch. And you see how much Kirk cares about this whole situation, because not only does William Shatner actually sound like he's emoting, holy crap, but he is willing to let them go with all the dilithium they stole, their neutrality intact, and by the way, I believe 100% that he was going to keep his word on that, and the fact that he was going to pay them even more dilithium in exchange for this drug, as long as they give him his drug right freaking Now give me the drug, give me the drug. Give me the drug. And unlike usually when that sentence is said, he meant it rather sincerely and without a kind of, eh, sort of a vibe. Good stuff. 
So, he's going to beam down to an obvious trap. He takes two precautions, which makes Kirk the best captain in all of Trek history. Look, I'm sorry, but the, the, the number of times, especially Janeway, but in many other shows, they have failed to do basic level security, like keep the comm open and keep a transporter lock, which, frankly, should probably be standard policy. That should be the norm. And yet he insists on it here. It's just, come on. Again, logical. And they don't trust each other, but they're, they're so insistent on keeping their... Why are they so insistent on keeping their neutrality? Now, you're probably thinking, lore, it's, it's really beneficial for them as, as a species and as a political entity. Yeah, okay. So why do they insist on breaking it constantly? If I'm really big on not eating apples, and I go out of my way to eat apples all the time, I feel like I'm defeating my own argument there. Now, you're probably going to say, Laura, you're naive. Hear me out. I want to I follow this logic thread for just a second, okay? Bear with me. So, is it because they're dumb? I mean, the Lord knows this is a thing. Is it because they're evil? That would be a bit dismissive, but as possible. It could also be because they're greedy, which would basically fall under the evil thing. But I like to think there's another reason here. Hear me out. One of the story threads that I've been pushing in the Trek Rewrite Project is the idea that as the borders get pushed out, piracy and, and, and crime in general kind of start to go on the downswing. Not because I think that Trek is a super idealistic utopian future, but because that makes so much sense. It's the same reason why in real life the Old West here in the States kind of started being a little bit less lawless, you can just shoot anyone because whatever, because as civilization followed, all of the consequences of civilization followed, right? As the borders get pushed out, things get more settled, more, well, civilized. I don't have a better way to put that. For good and for bad, by the way. I don't think I'm saying it's universally a good thing. Thus, an organization like the Orion Syndicate, which we do know prior to now, thanks to Enterprise, is already a power, would be finding itself having a harder and harder time operating in its own illegal boundaries as the boundaries of illegality get kind of shoved and redefined. Oh, sure, there's still bribery, and it's not like the Orion Syndicate goes away here, but you could see how they would have a hard time adapting. Now, they could adapt in several ways, and eventually they do. Hear me out for a second. But I like to think that what happened is the Orions were like, oh, okay, well, we're going to keep pirating and greeting, but we're just going to start doing policies and efforts to make sure we don't get caught. We just need to put extra effort. So effectively, the cost of operations went up. This means their overall profit goes down, which means their overall power output goes down. Nevertheless, they successfully operate for some time, probably until the Babel, excuse me, Babel incident. Then they are caught red-handed in the middle of trying to incite a war between the situations. And that's really bad at an international level. Now, you'll notice in that episode, they were, you know, they were willing to commit suicide. That means by that point, they had probably already started pushing this idea of the increased cost thing. You know, just don't get caught, right? By the way, part of that increased cost is the loss of personnel and ships that comes with the suicide mission nature of how they would operate. Now they're caught again. Red-handed, by the way. They not only force the captain to not commit suicide, but they take the ship intact. Ouch. This is as bad as bad could get, and probably leads to massive sanctions and damages to the Orions as a people. The species. So... You'll notice we don't even hear about the Orions for, uh, like, 120 years, I think? Shoot, I don't remember the timeline. It's a while. 
They're not even brought up until casual references in TNG and the Orion Syndicate in Deep Space Nine. That is a long freaking time for them to go from being able to interfere with an actual peace conference of the Federation to practically non-existent. And then back to prominence. What happened? I think that this specific incident and their insistence on this led to them going... And the Orion Syndicate that we see in DS9 is either a completely separate entity that has taken its name or a natural evolution of it. You notice that the Orion Syndicate in DS9 has no Orions in it. And you already see where I'm going with this. The idea that rather than it being a arm of the actual Orion people, it effectively becomes its own criminal organization that just kind of starts inter continuing to interact within the cracks of the new civilization that has grown out. Redefining itself rather than trying to be this big, obvious, effectively political power, it becomes this small, subversive criminal power. And thus we see this Orion Syndicate Deep Space Nine. Now, what does any of this have to do with why they keep doing these, uh, these operations? Well, I already kind of mentioned it, but another thing to further think about here. What if the Orions were using their criminal activities back when it was easier to do, like in, say, Enterprise's time, in order to fund their society? What if that was their imports, so to speak, and that was how they kept things running and how they operated? Then it got harder to do and more costly to do, so their overall prosperity goes down. Then they get caught. Now, in this episode, they mention two incidents of getting caught. One is the Babel thing, but there's another one before that, which I forget the name of right now. So they get caught once, and now it gets even harder to operate. And then they start doing the suicide thing. Okay, now it's even harder to operate. And, well, then the Babel incident happens. Now it is even, even harder to operate. And at this point, their overall prosperity levels are probably dipping below what is considered acceptable, either because of greed or because their society was so reliant on their criminal empire, which is no longer operating at the efficiency it needs to be, and thus their literal quality of living has dipped down. Now they insist on continuing to do this and insist on these missions because they have to. Or at least that's what they think. It's the only way they can operate is to continue to try and push these missions to keep this income. Because we uh, get get the water. Uh, we need to get all the water out of the ship that's sinking. Hmm? Now I have no idea if any of this is true. I just wanted to share my thoughts on it. Because you know me and world building. And all of this just made sense to me. What do you think? Real question. I guess that's actually it. The episode ends. Season 2 starts very strongly. Definitely like this episode. And I will see you next time.